You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Phmom.com. We're a multimedia platform where we hope to share stories to help others to find their next steps. We do this again through the power of story. And what better way and what better story and what better guest than to have Michael Corda on tonight, the former editor-in-chief of Simon & Schuster, the author of many books, including Alone, Hero, Clouds of Glory, and Charmed Lives, and now most recently, and I'm just thrilled and honored to have him on tonight to discuss his most recent memoir, Passing, a memoir of love and death. This is a story that chronicles the year following his beloved wife Margaret's diagnosis of a brain tumor and her battle that year with cancer, and basically how one deals with the worst possible news, something that's familiar to many of us, something that's difficult to talk about, and something that we're honored and thrilled that Michael had the strength and the courage and the generosity to share his story with us, dealing with something common to all. So, Michael, welcome, welcome. It's an honor to have you. And for those who don't know, it's an honor to have you back, because about a year and a half ago or two years ago, we had Michael on to discuss his book about Dunkirk alone, and it was an honor then, and it's an honor now. So, Michael, welcome. Welcome back. It's a great pleasure to be back again. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, thank you for saying so. It's a great start. <laughs> um, so, Michael, tonight we're here to talk about, you know, when you were here before, we talked about Dunkirk and the historical significance of the event. And tonight is a much different theme and much different tone. Um, and I'd love for you just to give us a little insight into into how you began this journey and how you began, you decided to document uh, the memoir of that year following your wife's diagnosis. Well, yes, I, I I had not, as you can imagine, intended to write a book about Margaret's uh, illness um, during the year between her diagnosis and her death, um, but after her death, the more I thought about it, the more I I I, I came to the decision that I ought to, um, and for a couple of reasons. First of all, I wanted to write about her in some way. Uh, introduced the reader to her character and personality. Uh, but also, I wanted to um, provide a picture because we, we view the healthcare system as essentially um, enormous, complicated, difficult, um, and, 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 and hard to approach. And of course, to a, a substantial degree, that's true. But on the other hand, I have to say that with very few rare exceptions, that what we um, experienced was throughout it um, a level of care and a level of um, genuine feeling and help that um, that was totally unexpected. Um, and and I thought that I should somehow write a book about that. I was very impressed, enormously impressed by the home hospice care people. Um, and they were without exception um, angels. I mean, they were enormously uh, 
helpful and kind. And I thought somebody ought to write about that and 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 and, and pay a tribute to just how good people can be in the healthcare system. I mean, you, you can argue that Margaret and I are not poor, uh, and that, of course, is significant. Uh, we were of an age where we had Medicare, and so the enormous bills associated with two brain surgeries and gamma knife radiation and so forth were, were largely covered by Medicare. Um, and uh, But nevertheless, despite all that, um, uh, we again and again found a level of care and kindness which I had not expected. And I thought I should write about that. I think that is so important and necessary, especially in a time now where everything is so negative. I mean, the, the, the go-to, which you hear a lot about, is you know the insurance companies. It was so hard and this and that. And what you don't hear is the good side. These men and women who in the healthcare, the nurses and the doctors and the staff and the hospice who are there 24-7 providing the warmth and comfort and stability that you need so desperately. So I'm just so happy you brought that to light. Yes, I wanted to do that very much, and I also wanted to give people a sense of, of, of what it's like. Of course, many people know, but many people do not, and do yes. not want to know, of what it's like to face a, a, a terminal disease and death, um, and and to, to document what that experience is like. It's not cheerful reading, of course. Um, I mean, there's there's no way to make it cheerful no. reading. No. But, um, uh, but I think it's... It's important to put it down exactly as it happened. And I was very fortunate in one aspect, which is that um, uh, I, I received and sent a tremendous amount of emails during that year. And therefore, once I had printed them out, I had an absolutely accurate timeline of everything that had happened and, um, and everything that had been said and everything that had taken place and of all the tests. Um, and that was an enormous help in writing the book. So I thought, this is a document which very few people are equipped to write. Yeah. Um, I, I have, you know, I have the material to actually make clear what happens um, during a year of terminal illness and and death. Also, I uh, I, I was fortunate that uh, Margaret's neurosurgeon, uh, Dr. Alanda Lobinia, was wonderful. Went to the same boarding school in Switzerland that I did and made all his. Uh, papers and um, reports and even uh, the comments he made during the surgeries themselves available to me. Oh, and wow. That was helpful. So you, I, I had the material with which to write this book. Having said that, it's not an easy book to write because um, Margaret was um, extraordinarily healthy, apart from being very beautiful uh, and apart from being a world-class horsewoman. Uh, and competitor uh, at a very high level. Um, she was somebody who enjoyed the absolute um, acme of good health. I mean, she didn't even have fillings in her teeth. She didn't um, have her appendix out or her tonsils out. Um, she uh, spent 79 years of absolutely perfect health. So it was um, uh, stunning when it suddenly became apparent that she was suffering from something as uh, serious as uh, as um, uh, metastatic melanoma brain tumors, about uh. which we knew nothing and had never learned anything. Um, uh, and and so I wanted also to throw in passing 
what it's like when you begin to digest truly terrible news, yeah, um, and how you uh, and how you face that and deal with it and go and and, and get on with it. Um, and it's 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 worth documenting because you know, largely you know you can say it with some justification. Who the hell wants to think about death? I mean, we're all going to die after all. Um, but you know, we don't want to sit around thinking about it. Yet, on the other hand, um, except for people who are going to die suddenly, you know, one moment, yeah. one moment you are drinking a glass of bourbon, and the next moment um, you are dead on the floor, which does happen to people. Um, it's happened to many people I know. Um, uh, most of us are going to go out in some slower and more complicated way, and it wouldn't would not be a bad idea to know more and to have a greater sense of that uh, before you get to it. Uh, that, at the same time. I And I think so many out there have experienced something similar to this or, you know, gone through, sat by the bedside of a loved one who was suffering. And just to know you're not alone, just to know the feelings you're experiencing and the ups and the downs and the frustration and that there's somebody out there that understands, you know, in the middle of the night when you're up alone with no one to talk to and just, you know, just your own thoughts. I would think that this memoir could not provide any more comfort or, or just something to hold on to and reach out to and connect with. Oh, I, I, I hope very much that it will. Um, I mean, that's the reason I wrote it, basically. Um, I, 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 People ask me constantly, um, uh, does, does this book provide some kind of catharsis for the experience uh, and make me feel better? The answer to that is no. Uh, yeah. I write it for that purpose. And even if I had written it for that purpose, I don't think it does that. Um, it, it, but on the other hand, uh, it's stuff that is worth knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately... Most of us are going to go through some form of this experience, either as the person who is facing death or as, as the person uh, caring for them, um, uh, husband or wife or family member. And uh, it, it would be helpful to know a little bit about that. And, you know, sometimes when there are judgment calls where it's medical care versus quality of life, where it's, you know, what decisions are you making and are those decisions more for a selfish reason? You know, how, how do you even sometimes make that, you know, how do you decipher between am I doing this because I want this for you, but ultimately is it best for you? Yes, I mean, those, those, are, those are exactly the kind of questions that you have to ask yourself, which, of course, very uh, are inevitably very hard to answer. Uh, also, I, I, I make a point in the book of saying that the whole um, uh, quality of life, I put that in, 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 in quotes, um, uh, that's, very, uh, th- that's a very tender issue because surgeons constantly refer to mm-hmm. the quality of life. Um, that you will have after what they're about to do. The difficulty with that is that, in Margaret's case, for example, her definition of quality of life is very different from that of a surgeon. Right, right. So anything that that did not give Margaret the ability to ride her horses with with the wind in her hair and to go out to dinner with her friends and to enjoy, in a quiet way, the life that she loved uh, would not have been a quality of life that was worthwhile. And 
we took that into consideration in many respects in the treatment because, and I deal with this in in, in more detail, of course, in passing. Um, uh, Margaret did not want to have immunotherapy, and um, uh, and and you have to make difficult decisions there. Yeah, the immunotherapy might have given her an additional few months, but they would have been months in and out of hospital with terrible side effects. Um, and and do you want do you want those months? Right. Um, and, and and Margaret decided very firmly that she did not. And and uh, and you have to respect that decision. Uh, and also not to assume that somebody else's feelings about what you should decide um, ought to be your own, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, you, you're the only person in the final analysis who can decide um, uh, what, what's what's worth what's what's worth to you. Uh, and what's not, and 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 you have to you, you have to go through all that. So I thought doing this as a book would be very helpful to people, um, and uh, and I came away from it, as I said, without any catharsis, um, but with a good feeling, uh, and I was very moved before her own death. Uh, I was in some correspondence with Mary Oliver, who's a poet. A poet that I admire, whom I admire very much, um, and who, whose partner um, uh, died of cancer, and Mary Oliver, sometime later, herself died of cancer, and she wrote um, uh, after the death of her partner uh, a short poem, which for me epitomizes the whole experience. I worried a lot. Will the garden grow? Will the rivers flow in the right direction? Will the earth turn as it was taught? And if not, how shall I correct it? Was I right? Was I wrong? Will I be forgiven? Could I have done better? That's uh, the, that's the questions that I think we all ask yeah. as the as the as, as the partner of somebody we love who is dying um, after the event. Could I have done better? Um, it's a good question. Of course, there's no answer because the answer can only come from yourself. But uh, but I, I I came to find great comfort in Mary Oliver's poems. Wow, that's that's incredible. And we discussed earlier. So my not you know, and I think there are different relationships. We're saying a spousal relationship going through something like this, and a child and a parent going through something like this, and just the whole family relationship when something is going like this. Lots of opinions flying around at the time. And Enormously strong feelings and opinions, yeah. um, and um, and the possibility of conflicts and difficulties. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, it's a difficult business, you know. Um, as I say, uh, I know people... Um, Joan Didion's husband, John Gregory Dunn, they, I, I was Joan Didion's editor, and John Gregory Dunn was somebody that I knew very well. Um, and, you know, John was having a, a, a glass of scotch before dinner one night, and um, and um, Joan came out of the kitchen. It's very hard for me to imagine Joan in the kitchen, but never mind. <laughs> um, uh, and there he was dead at the table. Um, uh, wow. 
instant, a terrible thing, of course. Uh, and, and she wrote a wonderful book about it, The Year of Magical Thinking. And I understand what she meant. She meant that there's a long period after somebody's death when you suppose that it's correctable. Uh, in Joan's case, um, she was unable to throw away John's shoes because she kept saying to herself, it, when he comes back, he'll need his shoes. Oh. So the mind is not accepting that he's gone and that he won't need his shoes. <laughs> Whatever else is going to happen, yeah. he's not going to need his shoes. Um, and, and, um, I, and I wanted, wanted to, to delve into those peculiarities of thought that you have um, because they're very real. Um, there's a, an enormous reluctance, for example, after somebody's death to change anything in the house. Yeah. I had a, a great reluctance and difficulty in um, uh, dealing with Margaret's clothes. Yeah. Talk about John Gregory Dunn's shoes. Um, I had no idea what to do with dozens and dozens and dozens of pairs of Margaret's shoes and riding boots. You, 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 keeping them seems weird. Um, giving them away to people who might need them is a nice idea, but I wasn't at all sure um, that that's something that Margaret would have wanted me right. to do. You know, I just don't right. know that she said, yes, somebody right. <laughs> else can have my shoes. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know, so daily, in the aftermath of something like this, you, 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 you either... Um, have to find a solution to it or put it off. You know, the other, the other, the the, 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 the other thing that's natural to do is say, "Well, I'll think about it tomorrow." Yeah. Um, but sooner or later, you do have to think about it. And I wanted to reflect all those things in the book in a way that's not um, that's not bitter or depressing. I mean, we are all going to go down this path sooner or later. But the question is exactly uh, what is that path like for somebody? Uh, no, because I introduced the reader in passing to her, um, and uh, and and who has in effect a year um, in which uh, you have to decide what to do next and how much to do and what to accept and yeah. uh, what what the doctors tell you uh, to uh, how much of what they tell you will you accept? You don't have to accept it all. Um, uh, it, these are all difficult decisions. And I, I think it may it, it, it's done in the book dramatically, but I but not in any way that that's exaggerated. Um, it, it simply um, from day to day reflects the decisions that we made, and that finally, when Margaret was no longer capable of making decisions, that I I made for her, which is also a very difficult transition in a relationship um, between two uh, people of strong minds. Um, uh, Margaret and I were together for 40 years. Um, it's very difficult to handle the moment at which you must accept that the other person can no longer make decisions. And I would think because you know that person so well that when you're making that decision on their behalf, is it is it in keeping with what you think they would want? You know, like how do you struggle with that decision? Or is it knowing what you should do but maybe struggling with the fact that maybe not what they would have said had they been able to. Oh, I think it's, it's hugely difficult. Um, it's hugely difficult. I mean, I think people feel great apprehension and guilt over that because 
uh, you constantly have to say, yes, but is that really what she had wanted me to do? Right, um, right. Uh, if she could express it, um, would she say yes, or would she say, you, you know, you're being an absolute bloody fool? And <laughs> <laughs> that's, right. Even imagine I'd want you to do that. Um, these are things that 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 you know, everybody goes yeah. some form of. And I'm sure, again, not without quiet observers <laughs> who may at that point have a little input when you're trying to make these really difficult decisions and struggling with what you would have wanted, what's the right thing, what do you believe is the right thing, you know, and sometimes with um, those who have opinions as well, <laughs> which is not making it much easier to make those decisions. It, yeah, it, it's never going to be easy, easy yeah. to make. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, the effort of of doing it is is of course exhausting yeah um and um and yet you know ultimately if you know the other person as well as i for example you margaret you you, you begin to have a feeling that um uh, that you do know what they would want yeah yeah and and um you just have to hope that you are. You have to. You have to do your best. You can't. You, you. You can't. It sounds like a cliche, and it is a cliche. Yeah. But you. You can't. Um, you can't do any. You can't do anything else except do your best. And I found that it was, of course, more difficult for us because uh, neither of us has a big family, um, and so there's not. There, there were not, not a lot of people around. That puts onto you. A much graver responsibility yeah, than I would yeah. just sit down and talk to you about. There again, I find the home hospice people, uh, home hospice people, and indeed some of Margaret's doctors were, were wonderful. Yeah. To sit down and talk to them, quite frankly, and get you know quite sensible opinions back. None of that sort of cold cutting medical um, um, uh, business, which 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 is often the case, where um, the doctor you know doesn't want to do anything except deal in the absolute medical um, necessities. I found almost everybody involved was uh, psychologically very helpful um, to both of us. I was surprised by that. I hadn't expected it at all. It's almost a special calling, I think, when you fill that role or, you know, as a hospice nurse or as a, you know, helper or home aide who's going to go through that. There's definitely a special calling. For yeah. someone who can navigate that and just understand, and the the empathy that they have, the constant empathy I found. And as I, I mentioned before, we lost my father, and he struggled. He had a, a lung transplant and ended up with cancer. And it was years and years. But there, these these people come into your home and they become your family almost instantly. Absolutely, uh, they they uh, they do become your family, and and you become very dependent on them. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, so I mean, there are good sides to the book. It's not a totally depressing book at all, despite its subject. Um, there's 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 e- even moments of a certain humor to it, um, but it is a it, it 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 it's a hard and harsh experience. Um, yeah. And yet, I think that uh, I I learned a lot from it, and what and if nothing else, I learned. Be patient. Um, I've always admired Margaret Carr's, and I think she faced um, um, the, both the illness and her death um, with. Um, sorry about that. Um, 
she'll speak up again. So, <laughs> um, uh, you know what? You'll need to unlock your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, but... I wanted to ask you, you mentioned before that you know, for you, you had a 40-year relationship. I have together. unplugged Alexa. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. She was off. <laughs> Modern day. Um, you mentioned before, Michael, that you and Margaret were together for 40 years. Yes. And will you tell us a little bit about Margaret and your relationship and you know, her love of horses and your love of books and, and sort of your world together leading up to this? Uh, well, you know, we met, uh, oddly enough, over horses. That's not to say that we were, that our whole life was totally wrapped up in horses, because of course it wasn't, but, but we met because I used to keep a horse at what was then the only stable, uh, for Central Park, and I used to ride early in the morning in Central Park. Really? Uh, on my own horse. And I saw Margaret one day riding around the reservoir, and for some time, um, we rode in opposite directions around the reservoir. <laughs> and then one day, we started to ride in the same direction and talk to each other. And from then on, it was you know it was all over with the shouting. Um, and we were both married at the time and uh, eventually got divorced. Um, mm-hmm. And eventually, I bought a farm up here and, you know, we had six horses and Margaret competed them. And the horses were very much a part of our life. And it's in a relatively restrained um, way, I try to give the reader in passing a sense of what our life was like um, right. and what Margaret's life was like because at the age of 18 um, she uh, was born in England, her father was a very successful farmer um, and um, uh, she was a, an extraordinary writer who began her writing career at the age of three with her own pony and at the age of 18 uh, she took a job as a secretary um, in the, the um, criminal investigation department of the Royal Kenya Police in Neri in Kenya during the middle of the Mau Mau rising, mm-hmm. which is a fairly extraordinary thing to do at the age of 18. Yeah. In the days when it take, took three days to fly to Nairobi on a propeller-driven aircraft. Um, wow. And, and, and going to someplace that is for, was for all purposes in those days at the far end of the earth, in the middle of an armed uprising. Um, <laughs> and she spent uh, three years living in Kenya, um, learned to speak Swahili, uh, married her boss, um, uh, Don Williams, whom she always referred to as the good-looking one among her three husbands. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 um, and then they separated, and she um, went to live in Nairobi, and for a time lived with... Um, uh, with Beryl Markham, which is probably not a name that rings instantly to you, but for those who have seen Out of Africa, oh, okay. uh, she's the, the, the young English teenager who befriends uh, Karen Van Blixen. Um, she rides up on her horse to Karen Van Blixen's house. Um, oh, wow. And, and Beryl Markham is that young woman um, who was taught to fly by Dennis Finch Hatton. Um, uh, is already fairly extraordinary, and became the first women woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. Oh wow! And then uh, retired to Nairobi, uh, wrote an enormously successful book, one of the best books ever written about avi- aviation, called West with Wind. Um, 
and uh, and Margaret exercised her racehorses in Nairobi and then eventually returned to England. So Margaret had this extraordinary life. I mean, she 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 first of all, nothing frightened her. Second, she was physically enormously strong and um, uh, and and without exercise or diet, always retained uh, her figure and her vigor. Um, and um, and she was. Um, uh, always up for an adventure, whatever it was. Um, so, so this is very much the nature of the person. Uh, that ties into what happens in passing because horrible as all this uh, would have been and is for anybody, um, brain tumors, um, uh, metastatic brain tumors, um, the various sur- brain surgeries um, to attempt to deal with them and the radiation between the brain surgeries, uh, these are all terrible things. But for somebody like Margaret, whose whole life was spent outdoors yeah. and, and hated to be indoors um, and hated um, uh, um, uh, to be as a tra- trapped inside, um, to become a a terminal patient lying in bed unable to move or use your hands um, was a, a special kind of nightmare. And uh. dealing with that, trying to deal with it, um, and trying to, um, there's no way that you can make it substantially better, but trying to deal with it on a day-to-day basis is very hard. And, and Margaret also made the decision, which I really deal with in the book, and which is essentially one of the things the book is about, um, to die, as it were, on her own terms, at home, in her own house, in her own bed, with her cats on the bed, and not to die in a hospital or a hospice. Yeah. And I think that that, for those who can do it, is often a very good decision. But it, it requires, on the part of everybody involved um, in the family, um, uh, an enormous commitment. Um, it's 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 one thing to visit somebody um, in a hospice for three or four hours a day and then say goodbye and come home, and another thing for that person to be dying at home yeah. in her own bed, so that you are dealing with that twenty four hours a day, um, and uh, and that that's that's something that I uh, I think is very hard to do. But in a lot of cases, is the best thing to do. I think yeah. people in that position um, uh, that it makes it harder for them to be transported out of their home and away from everything they know and love um, into a, a place that is essentially hospital-like um, uh, for the purpose of dying. When it might, they might be much, much better off at home. And they might gain some time yeah. in a hospice, but is it time that they would want or that's worth having? And these are questions that people have to ask themselves um, in, 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 in a sensible way um, and, and, and weigh the answers carefully. And, you know, we were talking, you were mentioning before how, you know, just the, we're all, it's all going to, it's going to happen to everybody. It's going to happen in different ways, an immediate or an extended period of time. And maybe the gift in that, and as I said, we went through it with my father, um, is there's time to say what you needed to say. Yeah. And, and you do have that gift, which doesn't seem like a gift at the time, but in retrospect, at least, you know, 
time goes by, a lot of things are not said that should be said. And did you ever feel during that time, at least given that opportunity to say the things that were not said or should have been said or you wanted to say? I think, yeah, I think yeah, of course, afterwards, yeah. one can't help thinking, I should have said this, I should have done that, I should have done it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think I, I, I said to Margaret everything that I could imagine yeah. it was possible to say. Um, uh, and and in her case, it was made um, uh, more difficult by the fact that the, the brain tumor essentially uh, pressing as it was on the left side of the brain um, um, uh, interfered with her almost from the beginning uh. and made it more and more difficult for her to speak. So that while she could hear and while she could understand, uh, it was very increasingly very difficult and eventually impossible for her to speak. That's also a very difficult situation. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, you, you, you have to do, I don't have to tell you, since you've been through it with your father, you have to deal with what is. Right, right. And like you said, be the best that you think you can be, or be the best that you do, you know, you can't, it's too judgmental of yourself at the time, you can only do what you think is right as much as you can do. Right, right. There's a, there's a, afterwards, you can go back over it and say, yeah. that, you know. <laughs> right, right. But it's, that's not going to do any good, um, and 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 it, also that kind of that's inevitable. You know, we all we all look back on the crisis and crises in our life and say, well, you know, I, I could yeah. have done it better. I, uh, and and uh, that's usually true. Of course, we could all have done it better, but it is what it is, um, right. and you simply have to face that. So I've, I've tried to deal with all these things in passing, uh, um, in a kind of um, organized way, and also to tell it as a story. Um, and, and I think it works as that. Um, you, 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 you get to know the people involved in this book, um, both Margaret and myself, and the doctors, um, and, and the nurses, uh, many of whom were saintly, they were so wonderful, and the home hospice people who, as I said, were absolutely wonderful. And, um, Frank Langella, the actor, um, who everybody will remember as as Dracula, right, and as Richard Nixon in 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 Frost Nixon, um, or Nixon Frost, I forget which it is, um, uh, and who's a friend. I uh, when he read the book, he said to me that uh, he wanted the chief home hospice nurse Donna Engel of Hudson Valley Home Hospice um, to look after him when he was dying. And I said, well, you know, Frank, I don't think that that can be soon. You're quite a young man, and as far as I know, you're perfectly healthy. He said, yes, he said, yes, sir. but eventually I'm going to go, and I want her to be the one who looks after me. So, and, and I totally understand that, because she comes across in, this, in, in, in the book, Donna Engel, as sympathetic and strong, absolutely practical-minded, um, firm in what needs to be done, um, and um, and at the same time, unsparingly kind. Mm -hmm. um, that's a remarkable combination of virtues. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I can no more imagine being a home hospice nurse than I can imagine flying to, to the moon. Um, but those who do it are amazing. Yeah, I agree. 
I, and, and like we said, they really do, they get there and you feel this sense of, I'm going to be okay. Like it's not, it's almost that they're there for the patient, but you as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember relying on them as much as my father, maybe more so sometimes. <laughs> you know, so I think they're part therapist for you at the same time as they're caretaking for the patient. There's a lot that goes into this. Oh, enormous amount. Enormous amount. It's, it, it's, it's a, you know, you, you, you go through life, of course we all have our own crises and our own problems, and, uh, but, but you go through a, often slipping past, you know, the really important or difficult tragedies. Um, yeah. And, you know, you can get to a certain age without having them. Yeah. But sooner or later, uh, right. you're, going to, <laughs> That's right. you're going to face one. And this book, Passing, um, without making any judgment, simply tells what happened to us when a, 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 a full-scale and terminal tragedy happened. Um, I, you know, I'm never suggestive in the book or suggesting in the book that other people have not had it worse or that we would to some degree con, um, con, conditioned by, um, you know, by having enough money to make things happen that would be difficult if you had no money and by having, as I say, um, um, uh, the whole um, benefit of, of, of Medicare, which was an enormous um, made an enormous difference. I mean, I right. cannot imagine how somebody under the age of 65 with poor health insurance, perhaps God can't even imagine no health insurance, would face something like this. Cause yeah. You're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, I mean, we were luckier than a lot of people are, and we also would have to say that for 39 of the 40 years we were together, um, there were no great tragedies. I mean, I yeah. had a cardiac arrest, but by miracle I recovered from it. I had two cancer surgeries, and I recovered from both of those. Um, uh, and um, uh, But in the end, um, you get a really full-scale tragedy and the experience of a terminal illness, and that's a very special experience. Um, was there a moment, and you said this sort of dictated sort of a linear progression of that year, was there, when you were writing it and reflecting back on everything that had happened, because sometimes when it's happening and you're in the middle of it, you don't even realize it, and it takes looking back to really, I would think, go back and really sort of remember and understand what you had gone through at the time. Was there a moment in the book when you were writing it, maybe a memory or an instant that really struck a chord with you about just how important it was to to go back and to recount that year. I, I it wasn't something that I wanted to do. Um, so there wasn't a moment when I thought to myself, "I have to do this." Um, but when I, I be, when I began to think about it, I thought, "Well, I won't be able to make any sense of it unless I do it." Yeah. And then when I began to gather up the material, I said to myself, well, uh, it's all there. You know, it's just a question of sitting down and making it happen and making it work. Um, and, you know, that's the point at which I, I said, okay, I, ha I have to do this. Um, 
it, it wasn't. Um, it's the book I least wanted to write of all right, the books. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I, I, I thought, no, no, you just, we have to do this. Um, and once I'd done that, it, it, it all fell into place. Um, and I was enormously interested in um, Dr. de Lobinier's, um, uh the notes he made during and after each surgery were fascinating to me. Um, I have that kind of practical mind. I like to know how things work and what, and, and this is, this is, you know the ultimate in 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 reading um, uh, how to do something. Um, how, uh, yeah. His notes I find are absolutely fascinating. Um, and and there's something awesome about brain surgery. That moment when he removes a moment of, of, of a piece of the skull, cuts into the dura, and is actually operating inside the brain itself. To me, that's Extraordinary, um, and I wanted to do some justice to that because it's hard to imagine being able to do anything like that. And again, what a testament and a testimony to the to the doctors and the nurses and all of the health care. Because we said in this day and age, there's a lot of negativity around all that. But to shine a light on you know the, one of the most difficult years of your life and Margaret's life, and to instead you know, bring the positive part out about those who are there to help in time of need and those who are not always given the credit they deserve. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I, it, uh, it, it is a way on my part. I mean, I don't want to overdo that, but it's nevertheless true. It is a way on my part of saying thank you to a lot of people yeah. that I couldn't otherwise in any other way have thanked um, uh, for their kindness and their attention and the care they took of Barbara. And, and that was an important part in what made me write the book. And I, but as I say, I think the, the, what really matters is that I wanted, in some ways, just to put that year into perspective, yeah. people, and help them to understand what it's like when you have to go through something like this. Um, there it is. I mean, you know, there's no, you can't get out of it. You just, you have to say to yourself, okay, this is great. That's this is this is the way it's going to be. Yeah. And I, but I think knowing also what's helpful and whether you're a spiritual person, a faithful person, or whatever it is that gets you through something like this, I think your book alone will get many people through this. I hope, I hope so, of course. And, and, and by the way, I, if I've left out the spiritual aspect of that, of it, that's because neither Margaret nor myself, neither one of us is, is or was particularly religious. We're mm -hmm. both. Um, members of the Church of England for what that's worth, which is the English equivalent of Episcopalianism, I suppose. Um, but but I wouldn't say that either one of us has a, ha, has or had a particular spiritual belief um, at all. I am not at all sure um, how somebody with a strong spiritual belief would cope with this. I think they might cope with it very much better um, and I think a spiritual belief would be a great help. Um, I don't share it, right. uh, but I think that 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 for many people it would be an important component of this kind of experience. Um, if that's I wish I, I, I wish I did. If you see what I mean, if there's any point at which you would like to have a spiritual belief, this is the one. That's but, the one. 
And I make that fairly clear in the book that that that, that that's not I can't I can't write about what I don't feel and what Margaret didn't feel either. But I'm but I leave it open to be But I I feel like your book, regardless, so for those who, especially for those who don't choose that or, you know, fall upon that, that this book gives that guidance or that comfort or that connectivity. I think it's just knowing you're not alone. So I think your book 100% provides that, regardless if you are or you aren't spiritual, knowing that there's someone out there. You're right. not, you know, you're not alone. Other people have done this. Other people have told it, and this is how it happens. And it's not. It is the worst year of your life, but you're not alone during it. Yeah, I think I, 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 I think I think the book should do that. I hope. Yeah. People, I hope very much that it does that for people. And people have been very kind in telling me that it was helpful to them. Uh, I think it's by and large. Um, a very difficult and lonely business. There's no way yeah. to, to make it um, otherwise. Um, but I think that uh, it's 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 um, it's a it, it's a testing time, um, and uh, I think that you know, I don't know how well that I actually handled handled it. I don't think it's it's for me to say in any case. But uh, but it, but I regard it as a, uh, a sort of as a test of you know, just what you're able to do when the time comes. Um, and uh, uh, I would say I'm glad to have had that experience because that would be stupid. Um, but um, uh, but but uh, I I felt very much that that um, uh, this this was what I had have to do. I mean, for a whole year, that's all I did. If you feel. you can't do anything else. Yeah. Totally yeah. overwhelms your life and eliminates every other part of your life, um, as, as, it's, as, as it should. And I think, like you said, you know, we all get called. There's a time we all get called. And it's, I guess, you're tested to see how you will act and what you will do. And I'm. We know from your story from the book that when you were called, you 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 did what you had to do, and you you know you made that last year of Margaret's life the best it could be. And in turn, by sharing that story, we're also grateful because you'll help others going through something like that to make the best of the worst. And we're so grateful to you for that. And I can't believe it, Michael. We're out of time, and I could talk to you forever about this. Um, I can't thank you enough for coming on, for writing the book to begin with, for coming on tonight and sharing this with us. Um, again, it's passing a memoir of life and death. And what's the best way for everyone to get the book? Well, immediately, you know, <laughs> local bookstore, and they're increasingly few in number. Of yeah. course, it's your local bookstore. If not, of course, Amazon.com stocks it, um, and uh, it will come the next day. <laughs> and it's also uh, uh, an e-book, so you can listen to it. Um, and I've met several people who've listened to it on long drives and 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 felt very much um, uh, um, uh, very much inspired by it. Um, and so so uh, one way or another, you can get this book, and one way or another, I hope that those who read it won't need it, um, but when they do, um, I hope it will be of comfort and help to them. Oh, what an excellent way to end. Michael, again, it's been an honor to speak with you again. 
I'm thrilled to have had you again, and I, I hope you have me on the show another time as well. And thank you for sharing this with all but of us. It's, it's, it, I'm sorry that it's such a, 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 a dire subject, but other than that, it's been a great pleasure to be back with you. <laughs> thank you very much. And we will talk again soon, everyone. Thank I you. I, I, can't, I can't wait to talk to you again. Um, oh. And everyone out there, thank you for listening tonight, and we'll see you next week. Good night, everyone. Good night, and thank you. Good night. Good night, Michael. We'll talk soon. Good night, everyone.